This is our eighth event total, our fourth event of 2017. And it is a unique one in a few ways because it's the first one we were doing during the day. Uh, I thought, um, let's try this during a post-Sunday brunch because the only other days I could get for a Clara Auditorium were Friday and Valentine's Day, and I just didn't think either would work. So we will see. And then secondly, um, this event is kind of not unique, but it's it's definitely a twist from the other ones we've done, which have been very you know policy driven or you know on politics or uh, housing or whatever. But um, I so just a little quick background about me. I grew up here and then I left, thinking I'd never come back because it's so boring. It's such a cow town. But I did come back, and uh, it's gotten so much better since I um, moved away. But <laughs> as I'm sure many of you will agree, there's a lot going on. But when I was in San Francisco for a time, I started um, doing these kind of events for the Commonwealth Club, which does these events all the time. And one event that they put me in charge of, this is for the, the younger members section called Inform for 20s and 30s. They said, let's do something about dating in San Francisco. There's so many techies and you know, how is that changing dating in San Francisco? I thought, oh, that, who's going to come to that? That just sounds so weird. Well, it was sold out. It was a packed room. And so when I mentioned that to my friends here in Sacramento, they're like, oh, my God, you have to do that. You have to do one here. So I thought, okay, well, let's try. And then I thought, who is here who's going to be able to talk about dating, relationships, love lives in Sacramento? And I, I found good people. I got recommendations for good people. So I think we have a really good panel. So basically, I just want to give you a little bit of a, a little bit of information heads up about what's coming up for events, um, just because we're trying to do this on a regular basis, like at least a couple of events a month, based on bandwidth. What are you laughing about? That's <laughs> I know I sometimes laugh at myself too, and I think, why am I doing this? But um, <laughs> basically. Uh, we have done events on the arts. We've done events on marijuana legalization. We've done events on um, how the election process is changing in California. And then we're doing one on dating and relationships. So it's, you can see it's kind of across the board. What we're moving forward with now, at least for the near future, is a four-panel series on housing, our crazy housing market. We had one here on Tuesday, last Tuesday, about the housing market here in terms of rentals and um, housing prices and why it's so crazy, learned a lot. The panelists definitely learned a lot because a lot of people were coming to the mic being like, I'm 30 and I can never buy a home. And it was really, you know, very, very interesting. So the next one that's coming up is actually going to be at the Brick House Gallery in Oak Park. Uh, Barbara Range has given her space. We're going to do one on affordable housing. And what does that mean in California? Can we have affordable housing? And, and what's being done about affordable housing that actually works? Because um, the, the goal is not to do a lot of hand-wringing about, oh, you know, housing, but kind of look at what's going on in terms of pilot projects or programs that are showing results that could be implemented on a bigger scale. And then that is February 22nd. The one after that is March 20th, it's on gentrification in Sacramento, again at Oak uh, Park's Brickhouse Gallery, because that's kind of Grand Central for gentrification, and what does that mean? And then we're doing one on CEQA, which for those of you who don't know, that stands for California Environmental Quality Act, and it is basically what land developers hate the most, because they say, before we even break ground, we got to add $120,000 in cost to the price of the house, and we can't build here. You got to reform it. So there's a lot of contentiousness about CEQA, and I just feel like as a, a new homeowner, uh, a former renter, 
I didn't realize how much these things affected how I bought, if I could buy. So I just feel like these are, there's stuff going on in Capitol Mall that we all need to know about as residents, taxpayers, and so forth. If you haven't signed up for the e-newsletter, I finally got uh, one going, and I'm going to keep everyone posted along with Facebook about the events coming up. So I do have a, you know, the old school manual sign-up sheet out there, but if you're interested in more events and um, want to follow along with this little fledgling California Groundbreakers, please feel free. So last thing I want to say is thank you very much to my lovely volunteers out there who are manning the tables. Uh, you guys, these are excellent drinks. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And also, I just want to do a shameless plug. I made lemon bars with lemon, lemon Meyer lemons. They're really good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. They don't present well. I'm not a good uh, spatula, but they're very good. So please, I don't want to take them all home. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, and then, <laughs> and then also, of course, I want to thank the panelists for coming on their Sunday to come out. And I don't know, Trey, thank you for providing comic relief, as well as the audience. <laughs> and also, just <laughs> last thing, uh, we're going to do about 45 to 60 minutes of audience questions, or not audience questions, moderated questions. I'm going to be asking the audience. Oh, my God, I, I think I've had too much to drink already. I'm going to be asking the panelists question for about 45 to 60 minutes. I'm going to gauge your faces to see if you're falling asleep or not. And then basically, after I ask my questions to you guys, I'm going to turn the audience mic over to you. And I just want to say, it depends, of course, on how long the line is. But try to make it succinct, a brief question. Um, you can ask one panelist or all panelists. But I, with these past events, there's been so many questions. I want to get as many as I can. If you have a two-parter, keep it succinct, but just don't go on and on and on. So I'll let you know five minutes before we start uh, taking questions. You can line up, and uh, we'll get ready to go. So I don't introduce the panelists. I let them introduce themselves. And I always like to have them uh, reveal a little bit about themselves with their intro so you get to know about them before they even I even start asking them questions. So I'm going to start on my left and uh, ask your name, where you work, I guess your current role there as it pertains to this panel. And as a personal note, I always like to know what is the best or worst date you ever had, you know, that you can reveal. Um, it's just one that kind of you can talk about without crying or, but you know, the best date ever, the worst date ever uh, in the past currently with your significant other. But you know, well, oh yes, that's right. Um, I'm so sorry. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I am, um, I guess I am executive director of California Groundbreakers. And so I will tell you, uh, actually, I've had a really weird date on Friday. Um, I went out with the general contractor who's working on my house. And uh, <laughs> yeah, very, I mean, he was very forthright and he asked me out. Uh, we went to track seven because I live near there. Um, and then uh, we started talking. He's English, and so, um, but he said he's a very morose person. So I thought, okay, that gives me some insight. And then I noticed on his hand he's wearing a ring. And I said, oh, I thought you were divorced because he had said so before. And he said, oh, well, I am divorced. Now I'm just living with someone. I said, oh, well, how long has that been? And he said, oh, six years. So I thought, 
Okay. Then immediately went to just beers, a philosophical discussion about dating and why people do what they do when they go out on dates. And he did tell me, um, he said, I can see why people, men are intimidated by you. This came out of nowhere. I can see why men are intimidated by you. You're so smart. So I, I actually, that's not the first time I've heard that. And then he, then he said, and I wonder how you're going to make money off of this nonprofit idea. I've been wondering about that ever since I met you. So that was basically what, um, that was the very interesting day. And of course, he still made a move on me at the end of the night. You know, so that basically made me think, how ready am I to go have this panel discussion about dating and relationships on Sunday? <laughs> but I have my blackberry margarita, and I'm ready to go. So... Let's start with Joey. So I love um, your story because it's all about alt facts, right? <laughs> Alternative facts, right? His version, your version, lies, truth. Anyway, my name is Joey Garcia, and for 20 years, I have been writing the Ask Joey relationship advice column in the Sacramento News and Review, SNR. Let's give them, come on, yeah. What? What? Thank you. Um, it's great to have an alternative paper in this town, especially one that's so sassy. Um, I'm also the uh, Fox 40 relationship expert. I have been since 2013, so I provide on-air um, advice about relationships. And um, what else? Uh, a lot of other things. I teach relationship advice um, courses to teenagers because I thought it was really important. I, I was working with adults and doing a lot of coaching with adults and began to see um, and say to myself, if I could have only gotten to them when they were a teenager. So I started now working with teenagers, but I have a, a private coaching practice where I do relationship coaching, conflict resolution, communication, dating, spiciness in general. So wait, I got an example of a oh, good a, date or best or worst. Okay, I have a really good um, recent date experience. I went out with this, um, or this really good looking lobbyist asked me out and uh <laughs> right and so I show up for the date and he brought another man with him and I thought is this a threesome invitation to a threesome what's up and he said <laughs> the other guy says I just really wanted to meet you I'm his cousin and I wanted to come on the date and I was like <laughs> okay come on that's good come on is that good yeah so I said, well, you know what? I'm not interested in either of you anymore at this point, but if you want to have a drink, let's do that. We'll talk. Because I think you guys really need my coaching services. And boom, I sold them on coaching. Because that's not worth dating, but it's worth making money off of. Boom. There you go. Hi, uh, my name is Adam Bush, and I'm the founder of Date Night XO. Right now, Date Night XO is a weekly newsletter where I send out date ideas that you can find around Sacramento. And I'm building it towards either an app or a website where um, it's really influenced by what my subscribers want. So as I learn more about the people that want to go on these dates, I could create something awesome. And so, well, do you want to hear about my, one of my best dates or my worst dates? <laughs> don't tell that story, Adam. I don't want to hear it. All right. Um, okay, so worst date. I met this girl at a bar, and it had been, like, months since I'd been on a date, and so I was kind of like, I want to go on a date. And so I got her phone number, and we started talking, and then one night over Facebook, we're like, let's go out. And we made plans, and then, like, a day later, she 
kind of cancels on me. And what she tells me is that she wants to see her friend's show in Santa Cruz. I went to UC Santa Cruz, and I had been there for a while, so I was like, you know what? Let's go on a coffee date there. I'll go hang out with my friends, meet you for like an hour or two, and then like we can have a romantic date in Santa Cruz. <laughs> um, so I drove to Santa Cruz and saw some good friends and went to, and took her to one of my favorite coffee shops. And so like the, for the first like half hour to 45 minutes, she like we met. I brought her a beer bottle of flowers in it. I thought that was cute and romantic. Um, and so she's talking to me, and she's going on and on about how she's a musician and about what it's like to have fans. Meanwhile, she's not looking at me, and she's smoking a cigarette. Uh, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, this is interesting. From there on, we went to her friend's hotel, and she drove me there. And when we got there, she's like, she looks at me in like this awkward way. She's like, I should probably just see you at the show. So I'm like, all right. So I walk to my friend's house. I'm like, guys, I'm on the worst date ever. And at this point, I'm like, it's like almost like I'm going back for like spite. And so I go and join her at this show, which is in like this tiny bar. And it's a folk band that her friends are playing in. And there's nobody there. And she tells me that she kind of likes the idea of them just playing just for her. When I was like, let's go outside and grab a bunch of people and make this fun. Well, regardless, I went outside and promoted their band and brought like five or six random people in, including this one couple, which I guess I made their day, because they're like, this is awesome, random folk band music playing in Santa Cruz. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. I went home, or to my friend's house, and I was like, that's it. What do you think? You're very nice, you're a very nice man, Adam. You're very nice. <laughs> I made the best out of it. You did. <laughs> Thanks. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Patrick Harbison, and um, thank you. I own a PHPR, which is a public relations firm here in Sacramento. I think today, though, for the purpose of the panel, I am the token gay spokesperson on your panel, so I have the required uh, bracelet jewelry. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how we identify ourselves these days. I have a couple fun dating stories. In fact, I've dated a couple people in the room uh, here today. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, one of my best dating stories is actually with my boyfriend, Charlie, who's in the front row. We um, realized on our first date that we had gone to the same college and the same high school, but didn't know that about each other. So it was sort of encouraging that, you know, you feel sometimes that it's really small, town mentality in Sacramento, and then here I hadn't known this guy, and we had done all these things and had all these things in common, so that was really sweet. One of my worst dates, however, was with Carlos, who is, <laughs> who, is he? who is also here in the audience today, <laughs> who, who, because we had not yet had sex, and he was pissed about it, stormed out on me at a bar in a very public and dramatic fashion. So that was, I was also making out with someone else at the bar. But, <laughs> but you're still friends. During our date, now great friends. Yes, That's exactly. Good. So two stories. How, how do I follow that up? <laughs> More to come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so <laughs> I don't know how to follow that, but okay, I'll try. So I'm Jen. I own the Queen of Dating. I do fun things around Sacramento events, dating coaching, shenanigans, fun things. Um, so one of the best stories, I guess, in my 20s was when I was living in Huntington Beach and went on a date on Main Street. It was a lot of fun. There was some cocktails involved, and I decided it would be a good idea to go skinny dipping on my first date. And <laughs> this is where it gets really fun. So we throw our stuff up on the lifeguard tower and think that we're going to, you know, go out in the water. It's very late at night. No big deal. Um, it was Shark Week. I thought it was very entertaining to be, <laughs> you know, it was like that was, it was that whole idea that we're not going to get eaten by sharks at the Huntington Beach Pier. But then the lifeguard truck pulls up and puts the spotlight on us. And I decided that's a good idea to swim out further and avoid the lifeguards. So the lifeguard decided to steal all of, all of our clothes, purse, everything. So when we get out of the water, um, we're wandering the beach looking for our things, and I had to flag down the lifeguard truck, and he put the spotlight on me and made me climb into the back of the truck to get all of our belongings out. So that was our first and last date as he cowered underneath the lifeguard tower and made me do everything. Okay, am I on computer? Yes, I hear the, okay. My name is Lee Smith, and I do research at UC Davis, previously at UT Austin on close relationships. Ooh, are you saying that to Austin or Davis? Excellent, yes, because I'm so glad to be out of Texas, actually, <laughs> and back in California. Um, I study mostly uh, close relationship transitions, so either starting a relationship, falling in love, or ending a relationship, breaking up. But I always, whatever I do, it's from a mind-body perspective. So how do our experiences in close relationships shape and influence physiological processes and vice versa? Um, but yes, that is right. <laughs> so, all right, I'm gonna tell you one of my best date experiences. Um, I'm gonna take it back. This was 15 years ago when I was 19 with a man who was a good man, and I've, <laughs> I've realized that I can't say anybody's names, and I love to tell stories with names, first and last names, but my girls right here are checking me. They're like, this is recorded, no first, no last names, but with a good man in San Francisco. And our first date, he was actually two hours late, this before the era of cell phones. So I might have had like a pager, but I'm pretty sure he did not have my pager number. But I'm like waiting in my house in the Mission District for this man, the good man, to show up. <laughs> and he too, because I keep wanting to say his name, but I gotta say the good man. Um, he's from the area, actually. So he shows up two hours late. I'm still super excited to see him. I'm like happy to see him, but because he is two hours late, he has to go to an appointment in 30 minutes, and that appointment is to donate some sperm. And yes, and no, I'm gonna tell you why I love this. I loved this for two reasons. One, this was a good, this was a good day. One, I appreciate some shamelessness, and this man is like, I need this $55. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, he was 20, I need this money. Girl, you can come with me or we can reschedule. So. <laughs> We get on the 22 Fillmore, go down 16th Street, up to Potrero Hill, and I'm sitting in this waiting room while, while this good man uh, provisions his sample for his 55 American dollars. 
and this was actually an intense, an intense experience because I'm like imagining what's happening there. I'm like, is he thinking about me? Like, what's he thinking about? And it felt good, like the the tension and the excitement building, knowing that it's no good man, knowing that I was attracted to him, and then he comes out, he gets his check, and so it wasn't even cash, gets his check. And we then take a walk through Potrero Hill, but there's so much like tension and intensity. And I remember getting ready to cross the street and he like reaches out to touch my hand, to take my hand. And it's, we're talking like fingertips on fingertips, like basically nothing. And it felt like crack cocaine being shot directly into my bloodstream. Not that I've done crack cocaine but a very positive, pleasurable drug. Just I felt that him grabbing my hand in my whole body. And I don't think I slept with him for like another two months, but like we then just walked around the neighborhood for three hours. I could pretend like I didn't know exactly how long, but I know it was exactly two hours and 57 minutes because I was checking my watch. <laughs> just talking and feeling this like energy and lust and desire coursing through my body just 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 holding hands and talking for three hours. And that was just one of the best dates I've ever had. And it's hard to return to that type of arousal and sensation once you've really fallen in love. Yeah, I mean, fingertips. We're talking like, what? What? All through my whole body. So that was one of my best dates. Yeah, that's what I got. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the writer, but uh, clearly. I also write. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, my name is Jordan Venema. I am a freelance writer here in town, so I write for Sacramento Magazine and Inside Publications. Uh, Vanessa invited me, um, not because of my dating experience, but because of the stories that I told about other people dating, so I'm really not qualified to be here. Um, no, nah, whatever. 100% she also She also pointed out in the profile that I model on the side. Yes. Um, Tell them what for. But I'm a model. I'm a writer first, then a model. Uh, for <laughs> that, I think that does come relevant when it comes to dating and it, relationships. It is. Though. I started a year ago, so it's you know it's it's new, after struggling to make it as a writer. Um, yeah, bad dates. Uh, a couple years ago, when I first got on Tinder, because who doesn't use that, right? Um, I went on a date with a gal that lived about two hours away, and um, a gal. That's how I refer to everybody. So. Uh, a lady, a very nice lady, she was very attractive, and um, we, we had some drinks, but I showed up and she was drunk when I showed up. So that was fun. Uh, then we went to a bar where her best friend was a bartender, so she drank a lot more, and then she disappeared. Um, it was about an hour later that her friend and I discovered her singing karaoke at a dive bar across the street, which <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to jump in, um, but then she ran out the room when she saw me, and I discovered her in the alleyway weeping. I mean, she was weeping, and apparently she was dating some other guy at the time, which I didn't know about, and he had called her, and he was ticked off. Uh, so he had called her a cab to take her home, and that was uh, the worst dating experience that I've had. Uh, yeah, it's pretty bad, so, um, but we're still friends, so it's, there's some silver lining to it. I didn't get my name. Did I, Jordan Venema? No? You, you did. Oh, okay. You did. Yeah. All right. So now we know, we know a little bit about you guys. Um, so I just wanted, if I hadn't said before, this is being recorded for a podcast. So just keep that in mind, uh, panelists, Trey, uh, in terms of, <laughs> uh, yeah, there could be a wider audience listening to this. Um, 
we're going to release it, I guess, ideally on Valentine's Day, Caleb, if that's doable. And then um, also, I just want to, I'm going to start with the questions, but, um, you know, I, it, I was just wanting to, you know, I'd like to know about you guys, and that's why I ask these stories, but this isn't meant to be a pity party about why dating sucks or so forth. But it is kind of like we live in a very interesting area, Northern California, and what's interesting to me is how much technology that started in California has changed uh, dating and relationships. You know, Match.com started here, here's down in LA, so there's a lot of things culture-wise, you know, California's a trendsetter. So I'm curious to know, you know, how that, has changed if it, if it has how we approach relationships and dating and how we do it so that's kind of the focus of the questions that I want to ask and I would like to start with the newbie because I did I did read that the the dating game uh, series of stories in Sacramento magazine this month's issue of various stories of people and how they met the horror stories so I think as a writer myself that's my day job I learn a lot when I uh, interview people um, about what they're going through I, it gives me an a perspective on, you know, the whole general scene. So I always like to um, see what people say and what they don't say. And so I was wondering, Jordan, when you were researching and reporting the dating game, you know, what you learned about dating relationships through that that surprised you. Um, and, you know, because it was locally focused, if it gave you any perspective into local, how we do it here locally. Well, for starters, everybody knows each other in Sacramento, so that was something I learned. Um, you know, I think I was kind of, I'm kind of new to the dating game because I was married really young and I divorced in my late 20s. So I didn't start dating until applications had already kind of come about, which was interesting. But um, it still surprised me that everybody that I talked to had met through some kind of electronic device, whether it was like Facebook or Tinder or even through Vine. That was really interesting to me. People who met across the country because they were following other Viners and uh, they became good friends and then started dating. So that was intriguing. The other thing that I discovered was that, and this is something maybe more in the 21st century, is that people really struggled, struggled with knowing how to deal with gender roles. Um, you know, traditionally 1950s sitcoms or whatever, you know, it was, it was very easy, like it was very well delineated how we should perform, I guess, as men and women and, and what those roles were. And that's kind of been thrown out the window. And some guys that I talked to said that they would meet women who really were put off by the fact that they wanted to open doors for them or buy drinks for them or you name it. And then later in the date, they would get upset that they didn't do the same thing. Um, so that was something that at least from a, a male perspective was new and that I hadn't thought of as ever being an issue. Um, but as far as Sacramento itself, I, to be honest, I just think that wherever you go, people are people and dating is going to be reflected by where you're at at that stage in your life. Um, if you want to be in a committed relationship, then you will find somebody else that wants to be in a committed relationship. If you just want to be on Tinder and swipe right all day, I mean, do that, and you'll find somebody else that wants that too. So I don't think it's really particular to Sacramento any more than any other region, except I think that a lot of people in Sacramento are kind of more in transition. I've met a lot of people myself who are either moving to the area or planning to move out, and that's always interesting when you go on a date with somebody. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna be leaving in two months, and you're like, okay, well, I guess we know what this is all about. And uh, that's fine too, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. You're welcome, Trey. Um, so Joey, as someone who's done this for 20 years, at least for uh, SAC News and Review, I was curious, you know, 
you probably get that, like, what, what's the question that most people ask you, you know, when they write in, but also I'm wondering if it's changed up in the past few years, if anything has changed in terms of the questions coming in or, um, so what have yeah, you seen? I think 20 years ago, like in the nineties, people were really concerned about their spirituality and how it aligned with their relationship values. And that is gone, right? <laughs> people don't care about their spirituality anymore. They just want to get connected, hooked up, have a partner and so that's that's a real driver that's changed things I think a lot of people um, feel like they are not whole complete uh, good enough unless they're in a relationship and that's too bad I think that's a really heavy heavy issue in Sacramento it's less so in the Bay Area that's been my experience and I do a lot of work there and um, lead a lot of workshops in the Bay Area especially San Francisco so I find that to be very interesting too here in Sacramento, there's been a movement toward using online dating like Match.com, for example, as a way to drive people um, into a, um, uh, what a mixer, okay? So, so let's say someone has an online profile on Match.com. Um, they're looking, they're using that to look for people they may want to meet and then inviting those people to go to, say, mix on a Friday night. And um, that way they can see the person check their, you know, check them out, make sure that they're what they say they are, because let's be honest, a lot of people lie on their profiles, right, right? Those guys are not that tall. I can tell you they are not that tall, right? Okay, um, so that's been an interesting um, movement that I've seen mostly here in Sacramento. That's not happening so much in the Bay Area, so that's kind of interesting, too. Did I hit all the yeah, marks? I okay. Think, I think you did. All right. Yeah. And, then, and then Patrick... Um, yeah, I know you're. You were. You're born and raised here. I was. Yeah. Yeah. In Sacramento. Sacramento, and then yes, I mean you are. I yes, I brought you in to talk about uh, basically. Dicks. Well, yeah, <laughs> but also because you are a guy. Like on my Facebook feed, we just became friends, but you are very plugged in to the social scene. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I just figured, you know, just for you know, hetero and and the um, LGBT is that a good term to use? You know. Um, you know, what has changed over the years since you started dating, you got out of college, started dating, and how the city has changed with people coming in mm. and transitioning out. Um, what have you seen in terms of dating and relationships over that time? I think that as millennials continue to age and get older, that more gay people are coming out. So what I'm finding is that even though we have a small dating pool to begin with, because there just aren't as many gay people by nature, there are more gay people coming out. And as the stigma around you know, being gay sort of gets lifted, more people are embracing their sexuality. So that is an encouraging trend that I've seen happening here locally. And I'm sure that that's mirrored nationally as well. Um, one of the things I think that, to get back to your original point about tech in particular, is that I think tech has made dating much more transactional. So specifically within the gay community, I'm sure that there's overlap in the straight community as well, but you know, it's the hookup culture. So it's really easy for single gay men to hop on Grindr, hop on Scruff, whichever, you know, app suits your personal type, and, you know, meet somebody, and then, you know, within an hour, you're having sex, usually. And I think, well, <laughs> fairly quickly, fairly quickly, I think, in comparison to sort of their hetero counterparts. Um, so that is something, maybe, maybe. That sounds quick. Maybe. So that is something I think that tech has absolutely been instrumental in is sort of 
the transactionalizing, for lack of a better word, of relationships and of dating, particularly as it applies to the gay scene. Okay. And then, Adam, I'm, I'm referring to you as my millennial on this because you're 26, right? And I feel, and I think you do work in technology. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious, too, in terms of, you know, on the millennial point of view, because you do, you do, you are doing, looking at dates, um, I guess, for a whole range of people. But I was curious in terms of, you know, when you came out of college and you had to transition into the adult world, uh, there's so much written about dating in college now well, dating and what that means, hookups and how they've changed how you approach relationships and then you have to transition out of college into the adult world and do you bring that point of view uh, with you? So I'm just curious from your point of view and then you know, with college mates and other people you talk to right in your same age group, how the dating and relationship transition, if there is one, comes from when you graduate from college into how you meet people now and connect with them. Well, um, I didn't really experience much of a hookup type thing in college. I dated uh, two girls, uh, freshman, sophomore year. I mean, at the same time. Um, but both my four years in college were pretty much in two really good relationships. So um, I think I was single during that time period for like nine months. But um, so then afterwards, I came back to Sacramento and it took. It wasn't until I really moved to Midtown that the hookup thing started happening. Um, I think just because, um, also when you're in school, you have like this place to go to where it's easy to develop conversations and rep or uh, rhetor, no, uh, just conversations with people. You know, it's really easy to meet people. And once you leave, it's, you're not in the same like ecosystem of people. And so it's kind of like, you have to start fresh um, with how you approach people and where to approach them really. And so um, I moved to Roseville back home, and there's just not a scene, a social scene like there is in Midtown. And so it'd be really hard for me to meet new people. Um, and that's before I actually used any type of uh, dating apps or anything like that. But once I moved to Midtown, it was like Tinder outside to like three miles. <laughs> and um, I'd meet people on there. But the fun thing was that I'd run into those people around town. And so it's like, instead of like really trying to create a conversation online, I would see them in person and be like, I know you like me. Um, oh, but that was your opening line? That was my opening line, no. <laughs> and, um, I should try that. So I don't know, maybe my perspective kind of differs from your typical young person's perspective. <laughs> hey, unless we have like some data and statistics on this, it's still open to debate. But um, <laughs> um, I'm fr I forget where I was going. How can I finish this question? <laughs> um, no, I think that I think that's a good summary. So yeah. Uh, so Jen, you do this for a living, and I feel like I know people who throw up their hands all the time in dating, and uh, just, I don't know what to do. And then it sounds like uh, many of them come to you. And so I am curious, like you know, the three to five year time frame. Um, you know, have you gotten more clients? Had their point of view on dating or, you know, what they want out of relationships changed? Has your approach to, you know, helping them get what they want changed? What have you, how has that worked in the past few years for you? Um, I think it's changed a lot because of Tinder, actually. So that came out after I started the company. So I wanted to actually give people the in, 
um, in-person experience of actually being able to go out and meet the people they want versus who they were meeting in their lives, whether it's online, match.com. And so I decided to start a company where I would actually take my clients out to meet the people they wanted to meet versus what they were attracting. And when people have technology at their fingertips, they're kind of lazy. So they don't leave their house and they're on their phone all the time and they're not interacting and getting out of their comfort zone. So I think as the years have progressed, it's kind of, um, people are looking for something more than just the online scene now. People wanna go to events, have fun, be able to meet people organically again versus just sitting on your phone all day long. And um, I've had many clients get married. Um, I had uh, one's getting married next month actually. And like that's the best part about my job is I actually get to help those people that we're not successful on their own and they've kind of come to me as a last resort of like, what am I doing wrong? I want that person to settle down with and how do I get it? So I create dating plans for people that are unique to their needs and the wing woman aspect of taking them out to help them actually meet those people. So I have a really fun job, very stressful job, but a very fun job where I actually get to go do those sorts of things. So it's been an awesome opportunity. And then uh, Lee, from the academic perspective, uh, I think it's really curious. I had no idea that UC Davis has a uh, relationship and attraction lab. Is that the official term for it? Yeah, that's the official term, but we just got here this past fall. So oh, really? So it's fairly it new. Yeah. So I, I was curious, like, what are you working on right now, or what study have you recently come out with? Uh, I think for the Facebook post, um, when I was updating the event on Facebook, I did see there was a little Vimeo uh, about research that you did on speed dating and you know how that works in terms of people's perceptions. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but what are you working on or your team is working on that's new and notable? Yep. Okay, so there are many things that are being worked on right now, but one thing that's relevant to what we're discussing now is um, how people come to know their own preferences when they're seeking a mate. So there's a huge body of research on what people prefer in mate and how that might differ for men and women or older people versus younger people. But now we're back at this question of how do people even know what they want in the first place? Because it turns out people are not that good at it. And I mean, I hate to say this because I'm actually a pretty pretty neurotic person, I'm high control, I like order in the world. I actually studied physics and math before I got into psychology, and so, yes, thank you, thank you. But, and so, <laughs> so I am a smart bitch, and, but, so we're really trying to look for a systematic, a systematic way to understand people's preferences, and it just turns out that if people aren't good at identifying what they want in the first place, it's really hard to make order out of that chaos. I will use myself as an example. So, I used to think for the longest time that beards were attractive to me. If you had asked me what's yes, if you had asked me, and no like piddly beards, like a beard, like a grown man beard. And if you had asked me what a key trait is that I'm attracted to, yeah, I would have been like, oh, intelligence is important to me. I need that man to worship me. But it's really like beards, that's good. And, and then if I actually review the last 11, 12 men I've dated and I plot their beardiness or I have a, I have a team of RAs objectively, rank their beardiness and I see how, how robustly that predicts how long I was with them, how attracted I feel toward them, how much I enjoyed sex with them, 
that, that is not predicting anything. It's not predicting anything. It's, not, it's unrelated to how satisfied I was in those relationships. But if you asked me on the spot, like, what do you like? I'd be like, beards. So this is all to say that we're trying to kind of circle back to this earlier point of how do we introspect? Do we actually do what I just did? Do I, do I make a plot? Could I make a plot for everybody of the last 10 people they dated and show how they varied on a variety of traits? Um, and the punchline is that when you're dealing with just one single trait, when I say, just name, just name one thing that's important to you, people are not that bad. But you add one more trait, I'm like, balance beards and humor. People are completely off the mark. And this is, this is analogous to kind of swiping left and right on Tinder, where you only have this one facet, which is physical attractiveness, that you're trying to assess. And then suddenly being in the real world, having a live interaction, balancing all kinds of variables. Yes, balancing all kinds of variables. Are they, do they seem into me? Are they funny? Do other people seem attracted to them? Like, what's their mate value? What's their history? Do we have anything in common? Did we go to the same high school, the same middle school? Were we from the same town? It's just all too much for people. So even though there are well-designed algorithms on dating sites to help match you, I have to say that I'm not quite confident people know what the fuck they want in the first place. So it's, it's demoralizing, but I think that's what it, oh, so what you're doing, this idiosyncratic kind of, let me build this for you per goal per person, that seems spot on to me. Because, so yeah, we do the five yeah. non-negotiables, and you would yes. you'd be surprised how hard it is for people to come up with five things they're looking for that are not negotiable. People either want to list 25 things, or they want to list one, honesty. And it changes, like you said, a woman's going to be upset one day that you didn't open the door from her, for her, and then three days later, she's like, why aren't you trying to pay? Like, where is your wallet? So, like, there's just a, a tremendous amount of variability, which is what I think makes humans amazing and beautiful, but complex as complex AF. I think people have been socialized, though, for the search. They're not socialized for courtship and for the whatever the end goal is. And so we're, we're, when we're talking about this, we're really not delineating the difference between making a connection and then dating for the purpose of courtship and living together or marriage or whatever you want to call it, any kind of long-term commitment. And there's a huge difference between the two, but they get very muddled. And unless we're clear on them, then we're just creating chaos. And I'm wondering in terms of geographical, so now my question's for all of you guys. Um, do you, the geographical where we live, California, and I ask this because I lived in New York, I've lived in I lived in Texas as well, and um, I noticed that how people approach each other is kind of is different um, in many ways than how it is done here, from what I remember. And people who I know from other parts of um, the U.S., of course, uh, outside, comment on sometimes how it works here in the Bay Area in Sacramento, commentary about Peter Pan's in the Bay Area, you know, never want to settle down, um, passive aggressiveness here, I go to a bar and I see somebody looking at me across the bar but never um, talks to me. In New York, they would just be like right there and say, you know, oh, what, what was your line? You know, I know you like me. So I'm wondering if in terms of Northern California, do we do it differently in terms of how we approach hookup um, or uh, you know, I'm I'm curious because you are you lived in Texas. So for anyone who's been in another part of um, 
the country besides California. Is there any truth or to what people say about differences in geographical point of view? Who wants to start? Joey? Absolutely. There's, um, I've lived in, on the East Coast as well, and people are far more direct on the East Coast. They're also more direct, though, in cities in general, right? Right, y'all? So they're more direct in San Francisco and New York than they are in Sacramento. There's more um, sense of self and uh, backbone, right? So we have to kind of get over our fear of rejection because it's really not a rejection at all, right? It's a clarification you're not for me. That doesn't mean I don't like you. It means you're not for me. It's a clarification. So we have to get over the drama around, I've been rejected. It's, I think it's that as well as, uh, again, like I said earlier, it's where you're at in your life. I was living in Visalia before I moved here two years ago. Shut the fuck up so you know. Um, Visalia might be in another country in some ways. It's, it's, no, it's true. It's, it's a very homogenous community, and I loved it. It's very beautiful if you just kind of want to stay there. Um, but that's what a lot of, what I found anyway when I moved there as an adult, I was in my late 20s, uh, people who approached dating for longevity. They, that's, that was the majority of people wanted that. They, and, and we're talking about um, you know, the Peter Pan mentality, but that's kind of new. I, I don't know if that's a millennial thing or what, and I'm on the cusp of millennials. Wait, what what is right that? There. Can you explain what the pe what's Peter Pan? I'm, guessing, I'm just guessing from what you so said. Peter no, she pa said Peter Pan. Peter Pan yeah. is a term that I first heard in the Bay Area, um, and it applied to mostly guys who never wanted to settle down. You know, They were wearing... Right. Basically, yeah, shorts and board shorts until age 40. And well, I don't know about board shorts, to, but... Yeah. Okay, so you know. can the I just say something? It's, it's actually it. um, from Jungian psychology, and it actually means um, someone who doesn't want to grow up. So it's not so much settling down as not wanting to grow up. And I don't know that clothing is a good fit for that as a criteria. It has more to do with someone's um, emo emotional immaturity. Well, yeah, I just in, in that community that I was living in, People were looking for mates, and that was it. I mean, from day one, there was almost an expectation that I'm not going to date you unless I want to marry you. And fuck, that is stressful sometimes. Um, moving to Sacramento, I haven't dealt with that as much, which is nice. Uh, but, you know, again, I think it, it, it has to do with where people are at in their life, not necessarily with confidence in who they are in themselves, but just what their ideal is. So, You know, I will add a note. I've only ever lived here, but when I've been single and have traveled for places all around the country uh, on vacation, I'm always extremely mindful that uh, the state that I might be in might not be nearly as LGBT friendly as the one that I come from in California. So for me, it's always at the top of my mind if I'm not in California that I need to be mindful that people might not be as accepting and as inclusive. So I think any gay person would share that similar concern because it's always on the top of your mind. I moved back from Southern California seven years ago, and the dating culture was so different there. But, and I had to relearn it, and it was very difficult for me because in Southern California, everyone wants to have fun. Nobody's buying houses. Everybody's out at the bars on the weekend into their late 30s, and they're not trying to settle down and have kids. And then I came back at 25, and it was just like this nightmare in my mind of coming back to Sacramento. Everybody was trying to get married, buy houses, settle down. And that was not what I wanted. And so it was a culture shock for me. And I had to adapt and kind of do more research on like the culture of Sacramento. So I think that being aware of the demographics and the, what people's expectations are in that area 
is very important when you're dating. Okay. And then uh, some questions, obviously, about online dating, because that's such a big, a big thing. Um, another term, paradox of choice, always comes up. You know, you have so much choice that it kind of is overwhelming, I suppose. Um, and online dating, definitely you have that choice, but that could be good or bad. So I'm just wondering, from what you see in a professional or personal level, is that, are we, do we have too many choices and that kind of um, re restrains us from picking exactly what would be best for us? Um, what do you see? Adam? Yeah, I think so. Um, I imagine that when someone uses Tinder or something like that, that they get like five swipes where they have five matches. And that person, one of those people, each has like five of their own swipes or matches. And so then um, each person, all their, their finite time is divided between like five people whose finite time is also divided by five people. So you can only create so many great conversations over text in a certain amount of time where you start either have to choose like one person or you just kind of end up kind of talking to all of them on a lower scale. And I think that is one of the hardest parts about online dating is that it's hard to pay attention to a lot of people that you're all kind of interested in, but also know that they might not be interested in you despite matching and all that stuff. Um, with, with online dating, okay. So I, had, I have had some brief experiences with it and I'm a huge fan, but I will, though, I went on like 31 dates in like 35 days and it was, a fabulous free dinner experience, but but here's something that I want to say. Yes, that's right. That would have been a big paycheck for you. <laughs> Some free dinners for me. But um, this is what I want to say: is you keep referring to the paradox of choice, and I think that's a that's a real important. Um, constraint of online dating. So in the judgment and decision-making psychology world, we actually call it the tyranny of choice, that it's, it's really challenging to balance a bunch of factors, like I was saying a second ago, but humans have automatic cognitive predispositions to making sense out of order. And I remember when I was on Match, discriminating between two profiles on the most ridiculous of criteria because they seemed so evenly matched. And I'm like, now this man says he makes $115,000, but this man says he makes $125,000. <laughs> so like, I guess I'm gonna go out with this. I mean, completely ridiculous. Some, something I would never do in the real world. Remember the good man who, was, who needed $55? And I was like, I'm like, you are attractive to me. So. So I think that when you have so many variables at your fingertips, we want to do our best to feel like we're making meaningful decisions between these variables. But again, it can just lead to obscuring what you might be able to pick up in a few minutes from a face-to-face, -face, in a face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, Patrick. Well, I'm not sure that, you know, we talk about the paradox of choice. I'm not really sure that there is one. So. We have all these apps, but I don't know if this is the same in, in the straight world, but at least on the gay dating apps, it's the same people on every single app. So as we talk about, oh, we can use Grindr, and we can use Tinder, and we can use Match.com, it's the same 10 gay guys on every single That app. is really They're all in the room right now, aren't they? <laughs> yes. right? So, so it doesn't really matter what app I'm using because it's gonna be, you know, Alex P. from Midtown <laughs> is going to be on all of them. 
There's there's definitely more choice than I would say in the heterosexual dating scene. <laughs> and then, am, am I Joey? I don't think that there's uh, a tyranny of choice or a paradox of choice. Although that term came out of research that was done in Italy, um, and and it was aligning the. Uh, online dating world to what happens in a supermarket when there's too many choices. So that's where it comes from. But what I find fascinating about it is it really tells us something different. It tells us that we don't know ourselves very well. If I know myself well, I know what I'm looking for and what's going to fit and what doesn't fit. So if I don't know myself, then yes, there's a tyranny of choice. Oh no, poor me. I have too many choices. What will I do? Right? Right. But, I, so it really gets back, gets back to how invested we are in, in getting to know ourselves and being a friend to ourselves. And well, tying into that, though, are we, so maybe, Patrick, you can't be picky, but are we, are the heteros picky? He and has I, the whole <laughs> world to choose from. He can I, be picky. I ask this because, you know, I know, I know a fair amount of women who say, I'm not going to date any guy under 5'10". I know men who say, I don't want to date any women with kids. And I just think there's there's like a, then it gets, you know, picky, 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 like, a, oh, I just know, you know, bald hair, no, you know, uh, or she needs to be blonde because brunettes have had a bad time with. I just think that sounds really picky. Is the, Are we being more picky now or not? No, that's not necessarily picky, but it depends on, it comes back to your value system, right? So so all matchmakers, and I'm sure Jen would say this too, they look at, you. you have to come up what, with your list of the things that, are sacred to you? What are the five qualities that you have to have in another person, you know, and that you live by or that are a great balance to your particular personality? And once those are established, then there isn't an issue otherwise. Because um, if I find those qualities, for example, in a person who otherwise has maybe kids and I wasn't planning on kids, would I accept those kids because everything else is there? Well, of course. Right. But are you, but is it changed in terms of people um, like, you know, sense of humor? That's pretty general uh, or very kind and caring. That's a, a very a big thing. But then when you're talking about, you know, specific numbers or income figures, are you drilling down to things that may not necessarily be, you know, in that category of, of values? I think it depends on the individual. Right. So so. Um, online dating sites that are really for not a hookup but but sell themselves to us as a dating site and I'll just go back to match for example um, probably cause, only because it's the biggest one so it tells you to keep your preferences as big as possible but the reality is you want to do the exact opposite and anyone who has gamed the system has done that so you want to be as narrow as possible to choose what is most important to you and you may end up with maybe two people that are a match for you. Yahoo! One of those is, is the right person. Okay, sorry, I have some thoughts on this. <laughs> so, like, I, I actually do think that it's important to, to, to know oneself, but the self is actually, like, a complex, dynamic, unstable thing. And I think that it can be very useful to actually, instead of thinking, like, what are my five non-negotiables, or what's absolutely important to me, but like, what is my goal in this moment? Like, is my goal to like feel better about myself, to feel less lonely? Is my goal to be inspired by a partner? Because once you 
once you articulate your goals to yourself, even if there's some shameful, questionable goals, and I've had some shameful, <laughs> questionable goals in my life, but if I'm transparent with myself about them, like what I want is to make this man love me, I wanna bring him to his knees with love, and that's my goal right now. Like, that's Okay, but a wait a minute, you yeah. just said that the yeah. self is unstable. Yeah. Okay, the moment is even more unstable. Yeah, no, it's yeah. totally- So be more, yeah. more clear about that, so, right? So, so I would say, okay, so wait, what do you mean the, because their moment is change. not a yeah. container, like we say, be yeah. in the moment, but the moment's not a container, right? The moment, it has momentum, it's always moving forward. Yes. So the self is always moving forward, that's true, but yeah. we still, there's still elemental aspects that are always going to totally be the same. I totally agree. I totally I knew you agree would. that there are going to be some, some enduring individual differences or personality traits, some goals that never change throughout your life, but I do think goals actually do change. They could change on whether or not you have a job. They could change on whether or not you're planning to move. And so uh, what, I, what I am trying to say is when you ask yourself, what is my goal, even in this moment, in the moment I'm building my profile or in the moment I meet up with this person for a date, you can calibrate your behavior to reach the goal instead of to fulfill some more kind of abstract, non-negotiable ideal. So and I think yeah. what you're talking about really is um, what I would say and what I say in my column is what it's the lifestyle you want, right? Marriage is a lifestyle, lifestyle choice. Too totally. Being too. single is a lifestyle choice, and that choice can change, right? It, in that sense, I would say that timing is just as important as knowing yourself because you have to be aware of where the other person's at and knowing that they want the same thing. And like you could meet somebody that would be the soulmate, you know, if you believe in that kind of thing. But if they don't want the same thing that you want, then you're never going to be able to have a connection because you're both looking for different things. And if you're being honest, it's not going to go anywhere. I love that you said that. I love that you said that because what you've just opened up is there isn't just one soulmate. And Jen, I'm sure you know a lot about that. Yeah, so I think that when I talk about the non-negotiables, it's more like experiences you're going to want to have with someone. So if you're really into volunteering or you're really into sports, you're going to want to have common interests you're going to be able to share with that person in the long term. So I try to get people to actually think about what is important to you and be able to figure out what that's going to look like for you. If you love animals and I'm, that other person doesn't, then that's not going to work out because that's something that's really important to you and prioritizing those things. It does change like at different points in your life and you, you have to sometimes reflect on what you want and understand that you may not get past those five things, but if you can get five things that you have in common with someone and can share those experiences, I think that's a really good foundation for building a relationship. I think that... um. I mean, for me, the idea of creating like a list of things that are non-negotiable is kind of weird just because um, when I think of a relationship, I think of something that people build. And w when you meet that like a sp special person, um, you learn a lot about yourself that you didn't know existed. That's right. And then if you're talking about a long-term relationship, in three years, your life is going to be different than when it was when you first met. And so the things that you set up might not even apply to them. And those things might have actually been recreated by the person that you're with. Ooh, and then, that's wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, while describing lifestyle as a form of relationship, like versus marriage or single or polyamorous or things like that, that doesn't really make sense to me either because lifestyle is much different from just your relationship. For example, one married couple might travel the world, <laughs> uh, like on foot, while, and I know a couple like that. Um, and another one's very focused on, like, an income or stability type of lifestyle. So I don't know, this is just thoughts I had. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna like, I'm sh I could probably use your services, <laughs> but I do wanna say when you do ask people to identify the non-negotiables, you are 
maybe forcing them to do something they wouldn't have done naturally. And so they are like creating, well, what's that non-negotiable thing? And it might have been much more flexible three months later if they hadn't written it down on paper on a profile and then started using it as a guide to find a partner. But but what kind of non-negotiables are we talking yeah, about here? Like are we talking about do you do you like cats versus dogs or like I want somebody who's That's empathetic. Real. That to well, me is something that I want. That feels like non-negotiable to me. I think they're talking about like financial stability, being right. able yeah. to like, you know, volunteer, yeah. you're gonna be able to go like be sporty. If you hate sports and that other person loves sports, you know, are you going to be able to get along and accept that? Those are just the sorts of, that's very superficial in a way, but it's also things that are like, what is important to you? What makes you like? Well, I ask this because it feels like, again, with the online dating, you are seeing people on a screen and so you can uh, self-select, okay, height or sports or cats and you don't get to know the person and so that can be a drawback, I guess, for some people. And then people who meet that person, maybe uh, without the screen in between, may find other qualities and forget about the height, the sports, the cats. So I'm just curious whether, again, the, the technology puts something in between people that may not, be, may not have been there before, and so therefore the, the pickiness, maybe, or whatever the term is. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of interested in hearing one non-negotiable from all of our panel people. <laughs> all right, my non-negotiable is whimsy. They have to be whimsical. Whimsical. <laughs> yes. I, I think that's a good one. Okay. Cool. Jordan, since you laughed, you should. <laughs> what's your? I just thought that was a great response. That's, that's all. It, yeah. no, that's I like good. to share in laughter. Um, for me, it's empathy. I, I need to. If I'm seriously considering a relationship with somebody, they have to be empathetic. Traveling, like if they want to just stay in Sacramento, we're probably not going to get along very well. So, I mean, I've had some, but this may be biased from my own experience. I have violated every single one, so I have had a relationship where non-negotiables eventually go out the window. But one thing that has more or less been consistent, and this is going to sound really vague, but like these two know it. It's like. I need my partner to like have to have it. If they like don't have to have me, like you can then don't waste my time. So like this is not so much like a personality trait, it's very dyadic, it's relational in nature. Like do you have to have me? Cuz if you don't have to have me, like I'm going to find someone that does. So that feels non-negotiable. And every long-term relationship I've had, I felt like that man had to have it. And so yeah. Mine is it's tried and true I just it has to be honesty for me in a relationship so it's if we cannot be direct and honest and have really true trust in the relationship it won't work for me and that's a non-negotiable yeah I'm gonna echo that that's mine too it's honest direct conversation yeah absolutely. so I'm gonna start asking people to line up at the mic um, and but hold up I've got I've got one I'm just going to ask you to line up. Um, so I wanted to ask about tech and communication in terms of texting, in terms of, um, no, you can, you can line up. I'm just, I thought there'd be more people lining up, so. Actually, no, you're not. You got to line up now. All right, fine. Let's Okay. All right. I have... I just, 
I'm uh, I'm really fixated on this question in my own mind, so I think it's I th I'm really curious about what's on your mind. What's your name in the leather jacket? Lee Smith. Lee. Okay. First of all, you guys should date. Bottom line, like. <laughs> Excellent. Go out to dinner. Excellent. Do something. I can feel the chemistry. This is like right a first there, date so. in some way. In a lot of ways, yeah. yes. Here's he brought question, a drink though. to me. Well, you brought so a drink to me. No, but this is like, this is this is like true talk. Sometimes it feels like, and we talk a lot about race lately. Sometimes it feels like average white folks get a better shake than really good looking people of color. Do so you true. hear me? So true. Okay. So true. Mm. So I want you to speak on that, and I also want the white folks to speak on that. That's it. So Joey wants to know what that means, and I will say, from personal experience, I was told on my online profile, thank you very much for my blackberry margarita, um, that I was told you should put that you're Latina because right now um, you look, your perception could be you could be half black, um, and uh, based on this OkCupid okay study, the people who are picking the, the least, they get the least picks are uh, Asian men and uh, African-American women. And I was blown away. I'm like, really? I have to change my profile just so I don't look black? Are you half black, half white? What no, I'm half Puerto Rican. Oh, okay. Half Puerto Rican. But uh, black, my friend Cindy, who actually gave me the Blackberry Margarita, was the one who showed me the OK Cupid, did a big story on race and attraction, and who was clicking on who in terms of race and... Um, Asian men and African-American women apparently got the least clicks. So I think that was one of my questions I was going to ask. So Carlos brought that up. So was that question, and was that question directed to Lee? I'm Carlos, start. was that question directed yeah. to Lee? Or all, any panelists? Okay. Do you want to start, Lee? I would love to start. So I, I'm half black, half white. A lot of people think I'm Puerto Rican. A lot of people think I'm Latina. Um, and when I was on Match.com, this is actually something I experienced, so I did just select African-American. Um, I was just recently in Texas for three years, in Austin, which is supposed to be liberal, et cetera, but it was during that time when, mm, there, was some, there was some trauma in Austin, <laughs> but it was during that time that I remember hanging out, having a conversation, it was actually with a group of research assistants, um, and one of them just straight out, flat out said it, that he would rather date a mediocre white woman than a mediocre woman of color. And I was, I know, that, you know what that is? That's racism. But, but I, I, I have actually been in exclusively interracial relationships. I've never dated another half black, half white man. I've dated, I want to say their names, but I can't say their names. I dated a man, a man from Guatemala, I, but I've mostly dated white men. Ooh, and I recently had a taxi cab driver inform me as a woman of color that those white men never truly loved me. It was an Uber driver. I gave him one star because he was on time, because he was on time, a and asked him to let me out the car like five blocks before I was at my house. And this is a black man who was just like a white man could never truly love you. Um, but I actually don't endorse those ideas. I, I do love and appreciate interracial love. But I would also just like to say, this is on the lighter note, but like, is, who's in an interracial relationship here right now? Anybody? Interracial love, interracial love. We have to be more careful with our Instagram filters when you are in an interracial relationship. <laughs> because the filter that makes you look best is not necessarily the filter that makes your partner look best. And so get this on record. Like, like people of color, they're trying to get a little Sierra. They're trying to get a little Valencia. Something that, like, I know the names. 
Like, you cannot let your partner end up like some eyes and teeth floating in a sea of darkness. <laughs> like, so just be mindful of that. But I, I, I do think that the, the struggle of race and dating is real, but it really does end up being like a one-on-one -on -one thing. Because if I start talking about it in generals, maybe yes, in general, white men aren't interested in dating women of color, but that has not been my lived experience. And it's, it's one of those moments, I don't rarely go down to the anecdotal, but I think that when you're navigating this world, it's really important to give the benefit of the doubt to the partner you're with, even if they're a white person, even if they're a different race from you. Be like, are you loving me? Are you feeling, you feeling me? Can I talk about my struggle to you? Because if I can't, then that's maybe a non-negotiable. But yeah, so those are my thoughts, and especially the filters. The filters, people. Like, uh, you know, we're such a diverse city, Sacramento, um, but I guess that's still an issue here. Yeah, yeah? okay. My dad's black, my mom's half black. Um, and uh, I came out looking like this, not from the mailman. I don't know exactly what happened, uh, but I came out on the lighter side. When I was born, my, my relatives said, put her in the sun, maybe she'll color up. Okay, I'm also an immigrant, I'm a Caribbean woman, so I'm from Belize, a lot of times people hear Garcia and they're like, oh, Latina, well, not exactly. So I have dealt with perceptions on many levels um, all the time, right? Because people say things in front of me thinking that I am not um, what I am. Um, but also, let's see, I, um, I've dated across the, um, across the lines, I guess. I've, I, I think the most important thing for me is, I'm gonna, yeah, exactly. Do they understand um, and appreciate the history of African people? For me, that's one thing. Um, how comfortable they, will they be around my family and me, right? And then also, you know, what kind of person, how do they treat me, are they kind, are they honest, um, are they direct in communication, are they self-aware? So that's what I care more about. Mm -hmm. Next question. Yeah, hi, my name's uh, Randy. I just had a question mainly for Joey, but it's kind of like for everyone because there's a, like a theme going on. Uh, you mentioned in passing something about the 90s and spirituality. Uh, and I'm curious because like a lot of the discourse that I think especially everyone else is talking is quantifiable. How quantifiable is this? How can we get this down to the granular level where we can break it down? And I'm curious if you can unpack spirituality and if, is that in opposition to this idea that we can nail down and quantify and kind of analyze everything about love and dating? Uh, is, that, is that in opposition? Was I reading that right or is that something different? Um, not to me. They're not in opposition. Um, and so I think of spirituality as um, the reality of my connection to a power greater than myself, right? And um, my experience of union with you in this moment or with the world, right? So it doesn't have for me any religious connotations. But I don't think of it either, either or because I don't really like that kind of experience. I'm more interested in paradoxes and um, union. So there's that. I think of everything for me is like a spiritual path. So dating is a spiritual path because it, anything that I'm doing that is an opportunity for self-awareness, um, has that's what spirituality is to me. So I, I for years um, was invited to attend at UC Berkeley their um, conferences on science and religion, and I was one of the panelists or speakers or participants because of this same reason, right? 
they they don't they're not it's not either or it's and Jordan yeah I'd like to add to that um you know you said that spirituality is tied to self-awareness and that that almost makes spirituality sound like a psychological process which I think it is but at the same time being people who are often religious and from different backgrounds um it's not necessarily tied into some some process of knowing yourself, but living in the structure of a system of beliefs. I grew up extremely conservative Christian background. Um, my father's a pastor, and um, I don't necessarily believe all the same things that I used to, but that's always gonna be a part of my life. And I find that that is something that I'm always going to have to relate to, to a partner on some level. Um, even if we both disagree with it now at the same time, um, we've, we've, we had once accepted it and now we've cast it aside. It's very hard for me to relate to somebody that can't understand that, that part of my own growth. And that's, that's hard, dating. I mean, that's almost a deal breaker in some senses without me wanting it to be a deal breaker. Um, it's tied into spirituality, but it's, it's, that word is so overused, I think, in our culture. I, I don't know. I don't think we even have like an idea of what that even means. Sounds like you have an article to write that will give you some awareness. Nobody's going to pay me for that. Like, nobody. Next question. Hi, thank you. Uh, appreciate the panel, uh, first off. Very awesome, very awesome time. Um, I had a question that hadn't been really brought up at all in this entire discussion, and that was on the topic of polyamory. And specifically, yes. I was kind of curious about some of the trends that you all have noticed in each of your different fields relating to uh, polyamory as it's kind of... Uh, gone through its different changes in the last few decades. And specifically, I was kind of curious on uh, whether or not you had encountered any sort of uh, any data on uh, the, the bisexual element of uh, those who identify as bi within the polyamory community and kind of wanted to get a little more insight on that from all of your perspectives. Thanks. Appreciate it. There's actually a great article that came out from my advisor, Paul Eastwick's advisor, Eli Finkel, called the... Um, I don't remember what it's called. Hold up, it'll come to me. It's got some crazy academic title. The, I don't remember. But the point is, it's by Eli Finkel, and it's about expecting your partner, your romantic partner, this new trend, and I'd say that's probably been around for about 100, 150 years, this idea that your romantic partner should be fulfilling almost all of your needs. So your like emotional needs, your sexual needs, your spiritual needs, your financial needs, your need for connection, your need for belonging that we've now like centered our romantic partner as the core and source of all of those all of those needs. And that it's really oh what was it called? It was really burdening the partner, assuming that you can get all these things from one person. I've had um two open relationships. One of them was with the good man who got his $55 for his sperm donation. And that was probably the most functional relationship I've ever had. It was before the polyamory, but it was before that was a, was a word being used in the mainstream. We were really figuring it out on the ground. And I do think that just so I don't forget that with um, people who are bisexually identified or homosexually identified, that you actually see more of a trend and an openness to alternative relationship structures in these communities. And I think that, I have some data that speak to this, but I think that comes in large part from already having to like fight to carve out a space for just having a relationship, period. And so there's more agency, there's more, a more proactive attitude toward being like, what do we want this to be? Because apparently it's not a given that it should even be something in society. So if we're already 
already carving out space for ourselves, why don't we carve out some additional emotional space or some, di some additional space around structure um, and open ourselves up to alternative relationship uh, arrangements? Now I have lost my train of thought, <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't remember. Oh yeah, that's right. I want to say a note on polyamory, and some of there's very little research on it, but it is coming out now. But it seems that one of the most effective strategies, and this is also probably true for any relationship, but comes up in the polyamorous context, is that one should be figuring things out with each other a priori, not post hoc. That's to say, like, oh, by the way, I slept with someone yesterday, but this is an open structure, and I think that should be fine. That that has its strengths, but an a priori ap approach where you're like, what I'm feeling is this person over here. Let me speak with you about this. And so you talk to your partner ahead of time. You see where they're at with it. You give them the freedom to be like, no, like I'm not feeling that right now. That happened to me once where there was this woman, and I just couldn't. She just embodied everything that made me made me insecure in high school. She was like an indie rocker. She had a pixie cut. She played the guitar. I was like, no, can't handle it. Feeling stressed with school. Don't have the emotional resources. And my partner was like, got it. So having these discussions ahead of time instead of like informing your partner as a courtesy afterwards can make all of the difference. I think that's true for any relationship though. So. Yeah, I think, well, polyamory, poly Wait. No, let, let's add them. Sorry. Um, polyamory is really interesting. I see that within like the 20s that it seems to me like a rising uh, type of relationship style. And um, well, I think that the idea of monogamy is I don't think any type of relationship style fits everybody. So that's what's really cool about it is that um, there's more uh, speakers and people like philosophizing huh, um, about polyamory and what it does. And what I've encountered with my own experiences with it is that it's very much about, um, I kind of think of it as like the idea of giving and receiving, where everybody has their own type of gifts, passions, interests that they give other people, and that's kind of what a relationship can be, where it's like two people have their things and they give each other and they create something. And um, what polyamory um, allows is that multiple people can provide like this insight into life in multiple different ways with multiple different people. Um, and it requires lots of communication, which is a really hard thing to do to with just one people, one person. Um, and I mean, it's just good etiquette for a relationship to be vocal about what makes you feel bad, what makes you feel happy, how you feel affection, and what doesn't. Um, yeah, no, polyamory is just a fascinating thing. On a, I just, I'm curious, I don't know if anybody would be willing to do this, but I'd like to know how many people have been in an open relationship by a show of hands. I don't know if any, I've done it. I will say that I, this has been a discussion for me with my female friends, many who have, um, are, you know, were married and now divorced, and they often, especially in online dating, get more than they would expect the uh, suggestion well, or the comment, like, I'm in an open relationship, or I'd like to open relationship. And it seems to be something, at least among that group of people, a new thing that they had not experienced before, like open relationship. I never thought about it, but now it seems like every guy or a lot of guys I am meeting want an open relationship. And so I don't know if this is a new thing or if it's a gender-specific thing, but in terms of, you know, I'm one of them. I'm divorced and now dating again. I have never heard so much about open relationships in the past 
year and a half, two years since I started. So it's certainly not anything that's a new concept in the gay community. Mm -hmm. At least as as long as I've been gay, uh, there a lot of my gay male friends <laughs> have had open relationships. And I think to piggyback on what you so eloquently said earlier, it's about sort of carving out what that relationship and what that space looks like for you and your partner. But you know, the face of how the relationships are open is also constantly changing. So sometimes it's a revolving door of just sexual partners. And then sometimes it's something more intimate and something more personal. So at least within the gay male community, open relationships have been around for a very long time. Okay, next question. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, a question is about relating to the, all these apps and the softwares that people are, are using now. I'm a little bit older, uh, not much, but a little bit older than a lot of the people in this room. And when I first started dating, there was no Tinder and Facebook and there wasn't even email and cell phones, actually. Um, and you just go out and you just meet people like in restaurants and stuff. Um, so nowadays, everybody's using these apps. Um, but isn't there any thought about or concern about the privacy. I mean, I've worked in marketing companies and technology companies, and all this data, it, it's actually, it's not private. You can find out a lot about a person that maybe 20 years later down the road, you know, you change and maybe things you were doing when you were in your 20s, maybe something might bother you. I've just been surprised that people seem to be very unconcerned about that or not changing their behaviors, because all these companies, basically, they're not giving it to you for free. They take your data and they want to sell it, package it, you know, it ends up on the desks of HR companies when they want to hire you 20 or 15, 20 years down the road when you're for, for that executive position. Does anybody care about this? I just <laughs> want to say quickly, <laughs> what, what does it matter? I mean, unless you're trying to hide something, what's the problem? I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me, and this was part of the article that I wrote, was that when you, when you meet somebody on one of these apps, you oftentimes have access to their Instagram or their Facebook or whatever. I mean, people Google your name nowadays before you've even met them. And I have, a, I have an eight-year-old son from a previous marriage, and oftentimes people know that before they've, like, I've even spoken a verbal word with them. And that is a fucking trip. I mean, but, you know, I like it because I don't, I don't feel that I have anything to hide. I feel that I am very transparent and I put it out there. And... I'm an open book. People can ask me whatever questions they want. For people who are using these apps in devious ways, perhaps that would be another problem. You know, if they're married and they're doing something on the side, I've heard that's an issue. But for me, I don't mind it at all. I have some things to hide, and I still don't. <laughs> but I still, I still don't mind, but I think that's also because as a user, I really didn't, I don't know how far-reaching um, the implications of putting things up on public are. I will say that as a researcher, we actually are able to use photographs and information from your profiles as research stimuli in our studies. Um, uh, a friend recently was looking at how older adults, 65 and over, craft their online profiles compared to younger adults, and it turns out that older adults use a lot more we language instead of I. They have more positive emotions compared to negative emotions. So we like mined that data right up off your profile and then published it because it's technically public. So I got stuff to hide, I don't mind, but I think that's because I just don't really know what's going on on the back end. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, again, appreciating this panel so much. Uh, I bring this topic up um, not so much because I have a specific question about it, but because it hasn't been mentioned so far. And I know that there's a lot of people in the room, and especially women in the room, that are navigating this in regard to dating, which is a lot of us have sexual trauma histories and are navigating, like, in dating, communicating around, like, when do we disclose this? How do we disclose this? Like, what kinds of things are we monitoring for as far as the degree of empathy, like you were talking about, that is received? A lot of people don't, like, our culture doesn't really support uh, teaching everybody in general how to kind of hold the space for trauma. And I think that that comes up a lot in interpersonal relationships especially between men and women, but also in the queer spectrum as well. Um, so I just wanted to sort of give an open invitation to chat about that with anybody that might have any insight to that. I know a lot of you guys with research or experience with, with people are navigating, um, you know, advising people that are navigating that. So, um, so yeah, just kind of opening that part of the topic. Thank you. So um, I have experience dating somebody or being in a relationship with somebody that has been in, uh, had experienced sexual trauma. And I see it as a part of like a great opportunity to help them heal these, this thing. Um, to like, <laughs> one second. Um, yeah, um, I mean, I think that when you know that somebody has experienced this, that um, it almost gives you like um, a better incentive to be there for them and to hold space. Uh, yeah, that's all. <laughs> well, I would say that death to me, and that did affect, I mean, I didn't date for five years, because um, I just, it was traumatic. And, but I got married to someone who basically helped me through it. And uh, I think I still look for that kind of empathy and, and being able to trust somebody. And um, um, sometimes it seems very hard to find it, but I think, like, with for me, I mean, I guess I'm because personal now, but online dating, I just feel like looking at a screen, I just can't tell. It's better face to face. Um, and, you know, not that I started California Groundbreakers to meet people uh, personally, but I do have to say, uh, when I'm not looking around at, you know, getting the setup together and making sure the drinks are on the table, I look around and I do see a nice mix of people at all these events and think, you know, I should have my single friends come and, and mingle more. Um, which and, and that leads me into my next question. I kind of like another term is, um, there was this book that this, this guy whose name I can't remember wrote about bowling alone and how he sees people doing things more, uh, like, you know, instead of joining a bowling league, they would go and they they don't join organizations that, you know, people in the older older people do Lions Club or Elks Club or whatever. There's more you do it by yourself or you do it with very people. If that has thank you, impinged on how dating is done and maybe that blocks some of us if we do stick to ourselves or don't go out as much with these um, groups of that people used to do in the past, we rely more on online dating or apps uh, if that affects the way that we date. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Who, Adam? I think anyone? one of the most attractive things about somebody is seeing them doing something that they love. And so 
my advice for singles, I guess, is to cultivate the things that you really like doing. And in doing so, um, it'll open up your world and um, it'll get you outside of your house and doing, you know, the things that you like. And then you'll attract the person that is seeing you in your, like, light or seeing you shine. And um, I think that's also applies to relationships, um, that when, you know, routine and consistency sets in, it um, pulls people away from what they're really interested in. And that ends up closing worlds for both partners. So, yeah. I just want to go back to what you said. Um, I, again, I didn't start dating until a few years ago, really. And I have been surprised how many women that I have dated or been with that have been through sexual trauma. And it was a huge eye-opener for me because I was raised in a way that I would never treat somebody that way. Um, so it, it's been an experience to try and understand something that I can't relate to. And that is a difficulty when, as a man, trying to understand a woman that I'm looking at in a romantic way, as a friend, that I, that I just can never really re understand what that's like. Um, I can't say what, what we should do is that as a culture or as a community, but I think it's important to talk about it. And if, in the dating scene at least, if, if as a woman, uh, if you can't meet somebody who can hear you, then fuck that guy. That's, that's all I can say to that. Um, and, and you shouldn't feel ashamed. And I know that's really a hard thing to say, but um, I, I know that there has never been an, a, a moment when I have met somebody who has been honest with me that I have felt that I have cared any less about them because of that. So. Uh, locally here, I work with two organizations. One is the Sacramento LGBT Community Center, and the other is WEAVE, which is Women Escaping a Violent Environment. Both of those organizations deal with uh, portions of the Sacramento populace that have dealt in some way, shape, or form with sexual trauma. And one of the big tenets that WEAVE says in particular is that exactly what you just alluded to, you need to talk about it. You have to have an open, honest, active dialogue about your past about the, the situation because only through doing that do you start to remove some of the stigma associated with it. And so it's healthy and it's honest and it's open. And I think that in having those types of conversations, which are really important to have, is how also it can be cathartic for you, but also how you can help remove some of the stigma associated with it. Yeah, I, I worked at Weave also uh, as a volunteer and I, I worked as a trainer um, at the Eldorado Women's Center training volunteers in domestic violence. And I think one of the things that's really challenging when it comes to dating for anyone who has sexual trauma in their history is that there is that desire to connect and also the anxiety around when should I say something. And sometimes that anxiety causes us to speak it way too soon before we know that the relationship is a safe one and before we know that the relationship has legs, that it's gonna go somewhere. So, so it's very important um, to, to tend to your own rhythm with that and to be aware of it so you don't speak too soon and share something with someone who um, doesn't have the right to know that about you and won't hold it safe, right? Does that make sense? So that's why it's always good to have friends who are um, trusted advisors that you can talk it through. Like, I, I, I'm on my third date, things are feeling good, should I tell him at this point or her or whoever it is that you're with? So. 
I think that, like, as the queen of dating, a lot of people perceive what they see in the public, but I was sexually assaulted four months ago, and having to pretend like it didn't happen because I'm on TV and I'm dealing with my clients and everything else and the trauma that goes along with that is extremely, extremely painful, and I'm just going to, like, you know, no one knows this happened, so I'm going to put this out there to you guys, like, how... You know, like how difficult it really, really is on a daily basis to pretend like you're not going through this. And the person didn't just assault me. They put me on the Internet on live sex sites. So I had people coming to my house every night, my phone, like my picture out there for seven weeks. And the police couldn't stop it from happening. And so just living through the trauma itself, but then having to get up every day and pretend like this is me being happy. Like I take care of everyone else. It's very, very difficult. And that is just the reality of the, the society we live in, that we're just supposed to suck it up and be fine. And it's very, very challenging, so. We're not fine. And I, like, I know we're, we're actually just giving advice now, and I'm gonna give advice now, like, this is what you should do. But I want to acknowledge for a second that I'm aware that having gone through trauma actually makes it harder than it normally is to take all of the advice that's being suggested right now and that you take your you take your motherfucking time with it like you don't have to do anything that we're suggesting at this moment um, from the research world i know about a few things that do lead to increased intimacy and relationships and one of them is one of the best predictors is mutual self-disclosure is what it's called so not just you opening up about yourself but your partner opening up as well and there's there's been a little bit of research on mutual self-disclosure in, tra in trauma scenarios, that not sexual assault, this was more like violence or um, stressful, highly unpredictable neighborhoods, food instability, et cetera. But this idea of actually disclosing something personal about yourself and having another person, even if they haven't gone through what you've gone through, but give you the courtesy and the openness of being like, I'm now going to disclose something deep about myself as well, builds intimacy almost more rapidly than anything else. Um, there's two other things that I would say come from the research world, not the like applied intervention world, but have been helpful for me when I'm disclosing traumatic experiences to a partner. Um, there's, it's the support literature. There's two types of support. There's emotional support and there's instrumental support. And just knowing that there's a couple types has helped me. So instrumental support would be like advice. Like, here's what you should do. This is what I'm thinking. Let's brainstorm. We got a plan. And then emotional support is more like empathy, um, perspective taking, kind of trying to be present with that person in their emotional state, not trying to move it or push it or change it unless that's what they're aiming for, but really provisioning kind of an emotional just like scaffolding for disclosure. So instrumental and emotional, having an idea of what you want in the moment you're soliciting support can transform your support experiences. Like if you know you're looking for advice, like what do I need to do? How do I go about this? Is it too soon? Should, can I even trust this person? Your friends and trusted others are the ones to go to. If you need emotional support, if you're finally getting to that place, where you feel like that person can be there with you and present and conscious, like that's the kind of thing that I think people typically do with their partners around mutual self-disclosure around trauma. Thank you so much for bringing that back. And I just wanted to offer a little bit of advice around this from my own experience, even though I'm not a panelist, but 
Uh, thank you for mentioning that aspect because I think one of the best things that a partner of somebody that's disclosing can do um, is to uh, say thank you, first of all, to you know really appreciate that self-disclosure around trauma is incredibly difficult and that it's a, a signification of some degree of trust that they're trying to build and, and intimacy that they're trying to build. And whether it's in an intimate relationship or like a friendship basis, um, anytime anyone that's offering um, self-disclosure around a struggle, whether it's inherently traumatic or more more general everyday kind of stuff asking if somebody is looking for empathy or if they're looking for advice is a really clear thing to be uh, you know if somebody's not able to say right off the bat I want empathy or I want advice to, to ask that and like look for consent around it is incredibly important to, to like build um, a safe resonant container in any type of relationship. Uh, and that um, I just wanted to add that for myself in navigating this as I have through my dating world, uh, obviously not, it's not a first date conversation by any means, but it is a relatively early conversation because it does come up if there's sexual trauma, there's stuff that can come up in sexual interaction and people need to know like that there can be responses they might not be expecting and how to respond to that. And I've certainly found that educating myself on uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is more like long-term developmental stuff, child abuse, things like that, uh, and being able to talk to people from a more like general PTSD kind of generic symptom level and being able to say like, when I'm triggered, you know, the language area shuts down, I'm normally verbal, and if you find me not verbal, please start asking me questions and engaging with me. That's a personal example, everybody's different. Um, but being able to, to talk about trauma in a more like meta level can be a way to introduce that in a dating, dating scenario without having to say, here's specifically what happened to me before the relationship container is able to support such a vulnerable disclosure. Um, so I just wanted to share that that's my own insight into that situation. But thank you for bringing that back. So. It's not always that traumatic. We've, I mean, Maybe, Patrick, you don't know, but, you know, we've all been assaulted. I've been assaulted. And I'm not, like, a happy-go-lucky, hey. And it's not, it doesn't take that. It's like you, 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 you contribute to your own trauma. And so it's fine. And so we're, like, we're all laughing, and it's fine. And, like, this is a, this is a very good panel. Because, honestly, you guys all represent, first of all, let's give you... Yeah, you specifically, you, 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 you. I was like, girl, where am I at? You know, and I'm like, you know, I told Pastor to embarrass him, and now here's happening. <laughs> but you know what? It, it, it's it's, it, you know, you're you're a a public figure. Patrick is. You are. You are. And so, how do you manage it? How do you manage trauma? How do you manage rape? Not well, bitch. There's no well, there's no good way to manage it. And like, the, the better you manage it, the more it hurts other people, you know? And so I'm like, uh, like that was so brave. So brave. Who said, what's my point? Did you say that? My question is, it's very hard to do what you know you need to do when you know you've 
come up. And you know what? This may not make no sense, so that's fine. But I'm like, it's hard to go through trauma and say, it's okay. And say, it's okay for you. It's okay for you. It's okay for you. It's okay for her. Come on. It's okay for her. <laughs> Thank you. All right, last question. Hi, yeah, um, I have a question for the panel. Um, I just wanna know if you guys enjoy dating and if there's one thing that you could change about it, what would that be? Okay. Would you like to start? I actually do enjoy dating, and I'm that, I'm that weird person that loves dating, and I also, I also love you know, first job interviews because they're a little bit similar to me because I love the experience of getting to know someone new. And so sure, it's risk reward. You might have a bad experience a number of times over on the first dates, but I really enjoy sort of that honeymoon phase of getting to know somebody new and, and seeing you know, how their mannerisms are and how they dress and what they like to order when we go to the restaurant or what their favorite cocktail is. I sort of love that new and innocent experience of getting to know someone. So I really do like dating and um, sort of wasn't downtrodden when I was single because I would date. I mean, I enjoyed going out and I enjoyed dating. So I liked it. Um, one of the things I think that's unique to gay dating in particular is the financial situation. I mean, it's always an issue even for straight couples. Who pays, you know, does the woman go Dutch? So one of the things that sometimes I think about wanting to change about gay dating is just getting those sort of gender stereotypes out of the way right off the bat. And so one of the things that's been successful in my gay dating is just taking turns. You know, if I pay for dinner tonight, Charlie might pay tomorrow night. But that is an interesting quirk, I think, that's a little bit specific to LGBT community people. But um, I loved dating. I'm glad that I'm no longer dating, but I loved dating. <laughs> so I love dating so much that I named the company the queen of dating. So yes, that is something that I actually really do enjoy. I like going out and meeting new people, those experiences, the stories, everything that goes along with it. I was a special ed teacher for 13 years, and I was blogging for seven years about my sexcapades in life under a pseudonym. So that is what you know makes my world go round is being able to tell those stories. I don't, I don't know if I love dating, but I like, I like love a challenge, and so. And you love dating. And I, exactly. Yeah. So I think then by default, I love dating. To, full disclosure, I actually, except for that, 35 dates in 31 days match.com shenanigans yeah so it's like more dates than days yeah like a couple double day dates i i have been in relationships kind of back to back i do something called monkey barring which is like i got my hand in one relationship but i got like another hand on the other bar of the other relationship and then i like just swoop right out and so I know I just I'm just trying to be real. I'm just trying to be real. Like so I kind of monkey bar from one relationship to another. So it's been a while since I've been single and traditionally dating. But I do, even though I'm not right, like ostensibly I am not right. I do I do love falling in love and I do love romance and I do love the challenge of all of that. And so I don't know if I love dating, but I date because I feel like it will yield many great benefits down the line. I think if you like people, you've got to love dating. I mean, if you enjoy meeting somebody and, and just discovering who they are, I mean, maybe it's the writer in me. I, any writer's got to be a reader before they're a writer. 
and uh, good stories are good stories, and everybody's got one. So I love going on dates for that reason. So uh, finances is another thing, though. That's a whole other story. So. All right, you're the last. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I like dating because um, it's such an adventure. You know, um, so many new experiences. You're like, what is this going to turn into? The thing I would change about dating is to have like if be totally socially acceptable at like the very first date to feel like completely um, open communication about what each person wants. Like to be like, that's the conversation you have at the very end of the date or something like that. That's all. Yeah, I like dating too. I think this, I, I'm going to piggyback is I want more direct conversation, less masking on that first date or those that series of first dates. Okay, last question or next to last question because I will take the last questions. Go ahead. Hi, thank you for being here today. Very helpful. Um, I have a series of questions, actually. Okay, so I'm obviously a little bit older, and um, I was married for a very long time, and I've been single for the last five years. I've learned a lot of different things in these last five years, like men actually are not uh, no pain, no gain. They have feelings. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, they have feelings, okay. So I grew up with a little brother and you know, he was like a he-man all the time. My ex-husband was a he-man all the time, very uh, manly and never showed any crying or whatever. So, but my question is this, um, now that I'm trying to date, uh, have been very unsuccessful. Um, my question is, uh, what do you do when guys, uh, message you, hey, how you doing? Um, how are you this evening? Or, hi. Um, these are all general things that usually are really irritating to me because if you're paying for a site or if you're on a dating site looking for a companion, you want something more of substance. So can you please enlighten me as to you know, maybe some suggestions on how to approach that or just pass by and swipe? Or, you know, what do you do? You mean? How do you respond? How do you respond? Well, I recommend getting, taking it off the dating app as soon as possible. So for me, it was like if I would have an initial connection on a dating app, uh, you know, which offers a platform to message back and forth via, I would take it off that platform as soon as possible and go directly to texting. The idea being that sort of the app kind of creates this space for kind of generic chatter. And that if you take it off the app, you're more inclined, I think, to have more meaningful conversation. So the first thing I would recommend doing is taking it off the app. But then obviously meeting in person. And you also, I think, can sort of set the discourse pace. So I mean, if your responses to him are much more involved and lengthy, and you're not getting that back, I think maybe tag out. But if you are able to write back to him in a detailed way, maybe it will encourage him to be more responsive and emotive with his responses as well. I have done that before. I replied with something with more substance. Um, most of the messages are very simple and they're, they're boring because I search for intelligence, first of all. How well can you communicate with me? I think that's just somebody you want to pass on by because they're just looking for something to occupy their time. They're not really looking for whatever you're looking for, right? And I agree completely with Patrick. Moving it off-site, but um, to, uh, to a face-to-face -face as soon as possible, really, then, you, then you're moving more quickly through the possible um, men that you're interested in and you're likelier to 
move faster towards someone who's a good match for you? Having, again, been on dating sites, um, sometimes when you match with somebody, it's easy to just be like, hey, or, you know, try and get quirky. I, I found that the more idiosyncratic I can be, you know, like showing myself and like my personality, that that gives an opportunity for people to engage you where you're at and who you are. They do. And, and if you do that and somebody responds with, hey, move on. I mean, like they're not going to tap into that part of you. So don't be afraid to be yourself and just be okay with that and be confident. And I think that people will respond and recognize it. My, uh, my other question was that uh, I have a lot of different girlfriends and they've all said this same thing. I met this great guy. We went out a couple times and then he completely disappeared. And then I heard from him again about a month ago and then he disappeared again. What is up with that? Ghosting. It's called ghosting. And I wrote an article for the News and Review about it in January. We did a segment on Fox 40 about it. So there's ghosting and unghosting. And I, I think it's just, do you want someone like that in your life? Then move on. You know, block their number, whatever you need to do, right? That's, that's it. It's not somebody you're interested in. Because then later on, they'll unghost you, contact you again, and then ghost you again, perhaps. Yeah, it's not worth your time. All right, so we're getting up at like an hour 45. Uh, so I was just being um, Joey, may I use your <laughs> mic? Um, last question is whether you are, you're in a relationship right now or not, uh, if you are in one, advice you would have for keeping it going, keeping the spark alive? Because I feel, especially, I thought it was interesting, Adam, with the date night XO. You mentioned that magazine, you know, you still need to have date nights even though you're uh, in a relationship. So, for people who may worry, I'm in a relationship, but it's getting a little, you know, how do you keep the spark alive? So any advice from the panelists for keeping it going? Who wants to start? How about you, Adam? I'll start. <laughs> Isn't it funny that I'm the youngest one? Um, it's hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> uh, so like, I mean, we'll start with a date night, but. What a date night is, is a special time dedicated to your other person and showing, I don't know if you've ever heard of the five love languages by Gary Chapman. It's kind of an easy way to think about how to increase affection towards another person by speaking the language that they really like to receive affection. And um, anyway. What, what are those? It's like touch, so gifts. Yeah, there's uh, um, physical touch. There's words of affirmation like compliments. Acts of service, which is like doing something for your person. Physical touch. No, sorry. Um. Um, quality time and and gifts and like yeah and so um, most people really like quality time and that's what's so great about a date night but um, along with date nights I think that to keep the spice alive is to discover and cultivate interests and new interests in that um, you know find something new to do with your person and if it's like skill based like for example dancing or rock climbing I mean like those might seem like absurd things but Think of how many possibilities these things open up for both you to experience new things. Yeah. Can I piggyback off of that? So there, there's, I'm gonna tell you what I actually do, which is morally bankrupt, but <laughs> I am going, but I'm also going to piggyback off of this, which is there's a phenomenon called the misattribution of arousal. It's, uh, you may have heard this study in your psychology 101 class, but long story short, if you walk over a low stable bridge and there's an attractive female at the end of the bridge compared to walking over a high sway unstable bridge and there's an attractive female at the end of the bridge, people who walk over that kind of stressful, 
physical, physically intense bridge find the female at the end of the bridge to be more attractive. They're more likely to contact her if she gives them their contact information. And they're also more likely to think that she's attracted to them. So what you just said, like rock climb, everything you see on The Bachelor, like <laughs> going like skydiving on a hot air balloon, et cetera, things that cause physical arousal, you actually come to associate that with your partner and they become paired in your mind. Um, but here's what I'm gonna say, I just wanna be real. <laughs> so you need to get yourself a good a photo editor for your phone <laughs> and you need to take some photos of yourself if you're comfortable right you got to take your time you got to do you but like remote relationships or using technology for what it can give you I'm going to tell you a study which supports why you should do this but get yourself some sexy fabulous photographs of yourself in your element being you edit them to your satisfaction but not too edited because then your partner will start to notice and share those with them, with your partner, because they appreciate it in person. And I think that honestly, here's the research part. When you have a photo you're looking at regularly, you actually start to uh, construct your like meta cognitive, okay, let's not use the research language, but your impression of the person around that photo. Because how many times can you imagine like just staring at your partner naked for like 10 minutes, which is what you can do with a photo. So I'll be like taking super great angles of myself, looking real fabulous, hiding that cellulite, hiding all the things I don't want them to see. And then knowing they're looking at that edited photo. And, and truly what the research shows is that when you ask partners later, does your partner have stretch marks? They say no, because they're used to looking at this photo you've sent them. And I know this is super superficial. I know that this is not something everybody's comfortable doing. I wasn't comfortable doing it for quite some time. When I was in relationships where I felt a high level of trust and support, that's when I started sending the photos. And the positive feedback I get in the making myself vulnerable with my partner and having them respond to that positively so beyond just like, you looking real good, girl, but like, I've given you this naked photo of me, and yes, it is edited somewhat, maybe too much sometimes, and you will call me out on that, but I think that this can keep the sizzle, keep the spark, like, let them stare at that photo for 15 minutes. See, I just want to say, modeling yeah. isn't easy, is it? No, I mean, I do it all selfies. <laughs> I got real good at it. I have, oh wait, sorry, just one more thing I want to disclose. I totally, I so shouldn't do this on the podcast, but I totally have a bank of photos that I just save. Like I take them at the beginning of every month when I have time, because who has time to be taking like photos of yourself looking all fabulous? No one's I take them at the beginning of the month in different outfits in different areas of my house. And then I just keep them on tap so that when my partner is all like, oh girl, what you doing? Can you send me a photo? I'm like, here's me in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm like, here I am typing on my computer. And I just send them like, I'm, like I took them in that moment. So like, you gotta keep them on tap. I don't ever reuse with partners except for occasionally, but it's good advice. Any, anyone else have advice or suggestions? No? All right, well, I guess on that note, visual attention. We'll say thank you very much, guys, for coming. Thank you for all the great insight and advice. And there's a lot. We just covered it, but thank you, guys.